Hi, you're about to hear our interview with Dr. Lisa Brophy. We understand that for many of us, discussions about mental health can be triggering. If you feel that you're experiencing a personal crisis, remember that help is available. No one needs to face their problems alone. For immediate help, you can call Lifeline on 13114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 and good morning to welcome to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. You're here with myself, Jaime, and with Carol. Good morning, Carol. How are you? Hold on. Let's do that again. Okay. <laughs> so, what you were saying? <laughs> I was saying that I can't get used to our funky new theme song. Yeah, you know, I was actually thinking, I just don't know exactly when to start talking. You know, before I, I had it pretty much down pat, but I really like it. And uh, just for our listeners, I'll, I'll remind them again. This is Fela Kuti. The song is called No Agreement. And I thought it was quite appropriate as our theme song because we are quite happy to have guests who don't agree with us. <laughs> Doesn't happen very often. <laughs> That's right. Um, this morning, who, who do we have on the show? Uh, we have a wonderful guest this morning. We've got um, Lisa Brophy, who is a professor of social work. She's spent many years doing research into mental health, and she has just taken up a new position at La Trobe University in the social work department, but I won't say too much more because Lisa will explain all shortly. Welcome, Lisa. Oh, thank you, Carol. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jaime and Carol. It's really great to be here. No worries. And I'm going to, the silly joke, I'm going to get it out of the way. Uh, Good. Okay. okay. You know, finally, we have someone talking about mental health at, in Mad Village. Yes. Well, All right. Very good. Very good. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> let's uh, listen to the first selection by our guest, Lisa. Um, see, pe- see if people like it. The mayor hides a crime rate. Always happens, always caught, caught by surprise. Uh, that was Sixto Rodriguez. Um, Lisa, do you want to tell us a bit about him? Yeah, I, um, I went to see Rodriguez when I was about, I was about 17. Um, and he was playing at Dallas Brooks Hall here in Melbourne. Oh, wow. <laughs> and my, my brother took me to see him. And it was just like, I was just blown away. And um, it was the first time I kind of come across a musician who really spoke to sort of political and social issues in such a accessible kind of way. And he – there was a lot of myths about Rodriguez, but he was working – I think it was um, oh, in either Chicago or Baltimore, maybe Baltimore. Um, where is it they make cars in, in the US? Detroit. 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 Yeah. I think it's Detroit. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I don't know the, the US very well. Anyway, um, but he he was working with um, with – street people and and all of that and also working as a musician as well anyway and he disappeared and then he was refound and if you watch the movie searching for sugar man you can find out all about his interesting history but this might be the first uh, local connection we're going to find in this interview so dallas brooks community hall, hall? is that near broad meadows no oh, okay <laughs> no dallas brooks hall was in the city okay. um well, it's really kind east of Melbourne. East Melbourne, okay. yeah. And it was a venue that uh, used to have big concerts in it before we had 
the very big venues got we've got now. And Carol they, remembers it. Yeah, they pulled it down and they built a maternity hospital there, which is where I had my children. Oh, I think that's the site of the um, Freemasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, yeah. that's where I had my children too. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> All right, we, we could reminisce together for a while, <laughs> oh, but we're actually going to move to yeah, your uh, right. working life, Lisa. Yes, that's um, right. Now you have two. Two positions, in fact, more yeah. than two. You wear several hats in I your do. professional life. Can you I tell do. us a bit about your various positions? Yeah, I will. Um, so I've been working for um, the Centre for Mental Health. Um, in we call My unit is called the um, Social Justice and Recovery Unit. Um, and we've... Um, and that's I've been at working, Melbourne Uni. That's at Melbourne Uni yep. in the Centre for Mental Health in the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. And my position was funded... Um, it's about seven and a half years ago by Mind Australia and they wanted to have um, a full-time researcher based at the University of Melbourne who were kind of in reach into their services and also um, build connections with the broader research community to really stimulate more um, mental health research activity. Mm. Sorry, who are Mind Australia? Tell oh, us a little yeah. bit about that. Well, them. Mind Australia are one of the largest providers of mental health community support services in Australia. And so the next thing I was going to say about my position is really I don't do clinical mental health research. My research in mental health is very much about those issues around social inclusion, recovery, reducing coercive interventions, and looking at models of practice and ways of enabling people to achieve social inclusion and economic participation and all those kinds of things we hear a lot about now in the context of the NDIS. Um, But back then, Mind was really interested in evaluating their programs, their mental health programs. Um, So they have some residential programs, um, they have outreach programs, and um, they have a wonderful uh, service called the Recovery College. And so some of what I've done is actually evaluating their services. And then uh, some of what I've done is actually help to build new models of practice, new ways of working that are actually um, trying to shift away from, um, like I said, those at that emphasis that sometimes happens in mental health in the mental health context of um, overuse of more coercive interventions and moving to more of a kind of human rights kind of lens, um, and that's been a really important part of my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, so you're also. Uh, moving to be a professor of social work. Yeah, yeah. So that's the other part. Yeah. Yeah. So I've really enjoyed that job. It's just been fantastic for me. Um, And I've had so much opportunity to do such a range of research and research in partnerships with all sorts of people across the university, internationally, all kinds of things. And and most importantly, with service users themselves, so consumers of mental health services. So I do a lot of participatory type of research and that's been really important. Anyway, but my my origins are in social work. So I decided to do social work when I was 14 years old and I did it at La Trobe. I started at La Trobe when I was 17 years old and I've now got the job of Professor of Social Work at La Trobe. So that's pretty amazing for me. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. So I'm transitioning now between my job at Melbourne and my new job at La Trobe. So I'm spending two days at La Trobe and three days at Melbourne until the end of the year. And then next year I'll still spend some time at Melbourne finishing projects and um, keeping my partnerships there going. But I'll be basically – my main job will be Professor of Social Work at La Trobe. These universities can be very civilised places for those transitions and things like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people – sometimes – what I could have said – 
you know, people have these really long lead-ups to taking up a job. Like they'll say, I can't start until next year. Um, And that's kind of accepted because people have got commitments and so forth. But um, because La Trobe is re-looking at their social work course and um, there's a lot going on at the moment in course redesign, they really wanted me to get started a bit sooner. So we negotiated this this transition time. Mm and it sounds like a good idea, but actually it's been quite quite demanding <laughs> because it's like trying to be in two places at That's once right. and um, meet my commitments to both places. So I have to try and just not try and do everything and just ease myself into my new job and try to let myself let go of my old job. So is your new job a teaching, largely a teaching role? Well, professors don't actually do that much teaching. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll do some um, and I'm really looking forward to that because that's actually why I wanted – I took – I went for the job. I really wanted to go back to working with students and and supporting students through that journey of becoming a social worker. That was so important to me and I really wanted to be part of it again with with students. And I used to teach in the School of Social Work at La Trobe too. I used to also teach at Melbourne and I've done a lot of social work teaching over the journey. So um, so I'll have some teaching and then I'll have leadership. Um, and the leadership at, at La Trobe is quite complex because we have um, – we have the Bandura campus where social work's offered, but also social work's offered at Shepparton, Mildura, Bendigo and Aubrey Wodonga. So I need to get my head around all of that. Um, we have local leadership. Fiona Gardner is also the um, discipline lead for the rural areas, but I need to have a sense of it as well. Um, and then the and then more than half of the job is continues to be research. So research is a very important part of you know, any academic position, but particularly at that more senior level. And also part of my, what I've got to do now is really encourage my social work colleagues to be more engaged in research. Um, and that's been the last seven and a half years have been, well, nearly eight years now, has actually been really helpful in sort of building my skills in that area. So this is an opportunity for me to go back to, to social work and say, well, you know, let's build on um, these opportunities that are out there to do more um, uh, of the kind of research that social workers are interested in and can make a really important contribution to. Yes. So I definitely want to talk more about that action-based research. Yes. But uh, I, before we go into that, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. Uh-huh. Um, so tell us a little bit about your early life, you know, where you grew up. And okay. Yeah. So the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree because uh, I was telling Carol that I um, was born uh, at Sacred Heart Hospital, what used to be what's now John Faulkner Hospital in Moreland Road. Um, and all my brothers and sisters were born there as well. How many and of those are there? There's, I've got two brothers and two sisters. And um, also my cousins lived across the road and there was 11 of them and I think nearly all of them were born there as well. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I was, I, my my parents um, both grew up in this area, so in Coburg, really. Um, my mum um, was an athlete and represented uh, Coburg uh, when she was young. Wow. She went to the Empire Games. Oh, in what sport? <laughs> oh, she did high jump and discus, which these days would seem a really strange combination, but in those days you were either track or you were field. Yeah. Um, and she was field. And, yeah, so, um, so she was... 
so and my dad um, and, and actually my mum went to the same school as my ch- as the school of my children went to, which is Coburg West Primary. She was ducks or something. They had a ducks in grade six, and I think she was ducks. Anyway, and uh, and my grandparents, um, you know, uh, lived in Shackle Street in Coburg. Uh, that was on my mum's side, and my on my dad's side. My dad was the my dad's father was the station master at Moreland, and they lived in the station master's house, uh, apparently. And they had there were six boys, and and that's on the corner of Moreland Road and Cameron Street. Yeah, is that right? Of, um, near Hall, near where Hall Street is. Near yes, yeah, yeah, that. And I think they only pulled the building down not well, like you know, ten years ago or something, maybe longer. It sounds like this interview was meant to be. I mean, northwest of him. I mean, that's r- that's, that's you. That's right. <laughs> well, that's right. It goes on though. <laughs> it goes go on. on. Go it on. goes on because because. Um, my dad had his legal practice in Sydney Road, Coburg, um, and my nana lived in Ohio Street. So that was um, – this is all my, on my dad's side. And uh, my auntie lived in Coburg – my auntie on my mum's side lived in Coburg. Anyway, but then my parents uh, lived in, in um, Prospect Street in Pascavale, and that's where um, I came home when I was born. And then we moved out to Greenvale. So we moved to a semi-rural kind of environment. Mm-hmm, yeah. But then that still connects to this area because Broadmeadows was kind of our – Broadmeadows is where I caught the train to school. So the G- Greenvale Geriatric Centre in those days, what a terrible name. But it used to be up the back of the hill at Greenvale. And I used to catch the Greenvale Geriatric Centre bus to the Broadmeadows station to catch the train to Essendon, which is where I went to school at St Columbus. And so Broadmeadows was a really important part of my childhood um, because um, I was involved in youth clubs and we were connected up in those days with St Dominic's, which was, do you remember, you know, St Dominic's located in in Camp Road? And then our church was West Meadows, um, was St Anne's in West Meadows, which is now a childcare centre or something. And, um, but anyway, and then... The Good Shepherd Parish started in Gladstone Park and then we were connected up with that. But anyway, I was involved in all these youth clubs and all this stuff and when I was a kid, you know, um, going to the going to talk about the youth of Broadmeadows and this is like the 70s. <laughs> so it's a long time ago. And uh, anyway, so that the, so Greenvale remained I can remain connected with this area. Anyway, long story short, I ended up living in Hadfield for three years with my husband in Middle Street, just down the road. You're listening to Environmentality. Oh, you're listening to Mad Village on ninety eight point nine Northwest FM. I still do this sometimes. Our guest this morning is Dr. Lisa Brophy, who should be inducted into the Hall of Fame <laughs> of uh, Northwest FM because of her local connections. <laughs> Just to put into context, listeners, we are sitting in a studio in Middle Street, Hatfield, yes. literally, <laughs> you know, a few hundred meters from where Lisa. Brought up her first child. Yeah, that's right. So this is a bit of a homecoming. Yeah, it is a homecoming. It is. It is. So you said uh, you decided to become a social worker at the age of 14. Mm -hmm. What prompted that? Well, like I said, I was involved in all these youth clubs. And well, really the main youth club um, in um, that that our there was a lovely priest at. the Good Shepherd who started a fantastic youth club and I was really involved in that. And through that I represented the youth club in these um, – I think there was this kind of organisation called Youth 2007 or something which was like this 
No, like <laughs> really looking, futuristic. Looking, looking so far into the future of how broadmeadows is going to. Anyway, and I met social workers and other um, community activists during that time, and I just knew that this was what was for me, and um, and also my school um, really encouraged any of us who were interested in kind of community work or working with others they really encouraged that so I had opportunities through my school and so that was it I just decided and that was that was my path so where did you go to secondary school I went to St Columbus in Essendon okay um, you said that already yeah yeah I went there right from prep actually okay. so um, so there was a lot of traveling in my life actually there's a lot of time on that train from Broadmeadows to Essendon and waiting for the bus at the Broadie station and all of that and from then you went to uni straight away in Melbourne as well yeah so I decided to go to the tribe to do social work and I started there when I was 17 which you know seems amazing like Uh, it seems like only yesterday, but and I'm sure that 17-year-old would not believe that she'd be going back there as the professor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, so that was that's really nice. And so I did behavioural science, which is three years, and um, and then social work two years on top of that. And that's where my I met my husband John, um, and we both live together at Pascoville South now. Hmm. Beautiful. So um, maybe we'll skip a few years and go to your You know, your first jobs. Yeah, yeah. As a social worker, mm. I imagine. That's right. Um, I actually went up to Shepparton for my first job. So it wasn't unusual in those days for people who, you know, were a new graduate to get jobs in the country. And I went up to Shepparton. That was that was terrific. And I worked in a little psychiatric hospital. What well, was actually a psychiatric hospital in those days? Um, there's not many of those kinds of uh, hospitals around anymore. Um, but anyway, I worked there for about six months and then I went travelling and then I went to London and I was lucky enough um, after I'd worked for a t as a tea lady and a few other things like that to start off with, I got um, social work jobs in, in London and I worked there for about nine months. And that was really interesting because I worked in a care in the community project in London that was about, that was really the beginning beginnings of what we call deinstitutionalization so people moving out of the big hospitals back into community um, and there was a very progressive um, Kilburn council who were very keen to sponsor people who were in a very large psychiatric hospital on the outskirts of London back into Kilburn and we did a lot of the work to enable that to happen it was very interesting um, and very difficult for everyone involved really For people who'd been in a in an institution for a very long time to move back into community life, mm. it was really interesting. Mm. I was r recently uh, listening on ABC. They had a show on Dr. John Cade. I don't know if you know who oh, he yes, is. Oh yes, yes. Um, and they were just talking about uh, obviously his early experiences with lithium. Yes. Um, and treating patients with lithium. And that's right. Anyway, that was just fascinating. And also because I, th I think he was working quite a remote setting as well in the country somewhere. I can't remember where. But yeah, he might have been. Or well, we had all these big institutions like Beechworth mm -hmm. and um, that were, you know, a long way out. In fact, even when I was like in these early days of wanting to be a social worker, I knew I had to do volunteer work. And... Um, probably one of the saddest experiences of my life was to go and do volunteer work at the Sunbury Training Centre. Mm, wow. So do you remember, there's still that, there's still the institution on the hill just outside of Sunbury. And I, um, that was for people with more 
uh, learning and cognitive difficulties uh, rather than uh, for specifically for people with mental health conditions. But that was that was a. I mean, I'm kind of glad I did it, but it was very distressing. I remember my mother saying, "What on earth? Why are you going to that place?" But it was it was good to go on to the into the other side of the walls as a young person to see what what these institutions were like. So it was fantastic to actually be part of the movement, really, to get people out of institutions. Um, and some of that was John Cade's work, you know, the the advances in treatments like medications and so forth. But also it was about changing community attitudes and enabling um, people to take up their rights as citizens in the community. And um, you know, there was so much there was there was so much fear about people moving out of institutions from the people themselves, which was kind of interesting as well. But. Um, well, but in some ways, wasn't it's no going back now. Wasn't there as well some sort of, I mean, the the perception of people uh, in terms of mental health was a, it was almost like a curse, you know, like you you were diagnosed and that was it. Yeah, and you, there was yeah. nothing you could do. That's right. Like that, so, so a lot of stigma and discrimination, hmm. and there's always been that problem of stigma and discrimination around people who have got mental health challenges. So we're going to talk about all of that in just a few minutes, but before that, we're going to listen to. Um, Dr. Lisa Brophy's second selection, uh, a bit of Johnny Mitchell, it's always good for the soul. <laughs> So you're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. The track we just heard was Woodstock and that was another selection by our guest this morning, Dr. Lisa Brophy. And Lisa, do you want to comment a little bit on that track? Oh, look, I suppose all I can say is that Joni um, is that beautiful voice and really discovered, you know, when I was at university. Um, and I, it's sort of like that kind of idea of almost like a friend, you know, someone who who feels like has been with you, you know, that, that when times are tough... It's a good idea to just sit back and <laughs> listen to Joni Mitchell. It's hard to explain it, really. I think, I think that what you said actually was really good about that idea about how it's good for the soul. She kind of connects, I think, with people's sort of fundamental values and ideas. All right. Mm. So before we uh, started listening to the track, we had left you, uh, I don't know, somewhere in your mid twenties, I imagine, uh, doing a couple of. Uh, different jobs and yeah. go, going to London and spending yeah. a bit of time working there. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about you know where the story followed yeah. from that. So um, so then I came back. Um, I came back to Australia and eventually, um, as I said, I lived in um, Carlton for a while, you know, in a share house. But then I, um, when my husband and I married and had small children, we lived here in Hadfield um, before we moved to Pascoval South. And my, in my working life, I was working out in the western suburbs. Um, I worked in a community mental health service out at St Albans. Um, so I worked out in St Albans and Sunshine, and that was really interesting, a very diverse community. Um, lots of um, people from – I learned a lot about um, the former Yugoslavia, you know, Serbian and Croatian mm. people and Maltese people living out that way and very um, – and we had a, we worked with the hospital that was based at Footscray. Um, 
then, um, then I actually came back to this area again because I got a job in forensic psychiatry. So I actually worked in the prison. So I worked in Coburg. In Coburg. Um, so I was working in. Was that Pentridge? In Pentridge, oh, wow. yeah. So um, behind the walls of the big prison used to be two prisons, actually. There was Pentridge and there was Metropolitan Reception Prison. And inside Metropolitan Reception Prison, there was a division called, there was G Division, which is where people who had um, uh, mental health issues came. And um, it may have been that they were connected up. Sometimes people were also sent to hospital from there. Um, we round, well, it's, it sounds awful, but we rounded up um, all these people who were under the governor's pleasure at the time. They were in all these, um, all the country prisons, and there were people who were kind of languishing out in the country prisons. Um, and we brought them all in to G Division um, to try and sort out what was happening with a range of people who had been found not guilty, but. Um, but had still been incarcerated. So, um, how did that happen? So, they were found not guilty on the basis of what, you know, these are the old days of, you know, not guilty on the basis of insanity. But they. Um, but they kept them in prison. But they kept them in prison. And sometimes they stayed in prison longer than other people. There was a great injustice that was going on. Um, and so, uh, so the, the law, the, the laws have all changed since then and been modernised. And then you might have heard of the Thomas Embling Hospital has been built since then, and we have much better facilities for caring for people under those circumstances. Um, but anyway, that was very formative to go and work in the prison. And also, I worked with a lot of people who should never have been in prison in the first place, um, who had, um, you know, serious mental health issues and um, unfortunately weren't getting access to the treatment and support they needed and ended uh, up in prison. And unfortunately that's still a, a sad reality. That's right, especially in the United States in particular, but here too I think. Mm, yeah. um, and our prisons are bursting at the moment um, and very difficult to keep up with the needs of prisoners with mental health issues. So I imagine that by that time you had acquired quite a bit of experience. You probably were forming some views about mental health That's right. issues in general. Yes. What, 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 where were your thoughts heading? Well, it was interesting because when I worked in the prison, I started to think that there was whole gaps in my education. I had two degrees. I had a psychology degree and a social work degree. But I realised that there were other forces that were involved in the work that I was doing. And I went back to La Trobe again and I did a master's in policy and law. And it was only until my third, it was my third degree before I opened the Constitution of, of Australia and started to understand our legal system, how policy was developed, um, how, how important those factors were to my day-to-day world and my day-to-day practice. And I started, it was a really interesting time because the, um, John Cain, the so, um, was the Premier of Victoria and the social justice strategy was um, being implemented in Victoria. And so we saw these changes in legislation. So we had a new Mental Health Act, we had a new Guardianship Administration Act, new act to protect the rights of people with intellectual disability. And um, there were other Commonwealth um, developments as well that were all about enabling administrative law and starting to open up all the decision-making 
um, and starting to think about how to protect the rights of, uh, of people with disabilities and so forth. And um, I, I could see the, how important that was in the mental health context. And we had a new mental health review board where decisions that, about who would be involuntarily admitted to hospital were being reviewed and um, a lot more protections around that were were put in, into place by the by what was then the new Mental Health Act that was back in 1986, um, and so uh, so doing my masters at that time was really helpful to sort of understand all these new developments, and um, <clears throat> and then I looked at the Mental Health Review Board as part of my as for my thesis, and then I've actually since become a community member of what's now the Mental Health Tribunal in Victoria. So um, so I suppose what I'm trying to describe is that I started to sort of do get very interested in the interface between psychiatry or mental health and law. And that's really been the area that I've stayed in a lot in terms of my research and my interests. And there are things called community treatment orders, which um, um, people are placed on community treatment orders and we have about 5,000 people in Victoria on community treatment orders. And these are people who are... Um, required to comply with um, with treatment in the community or else I'll be sent back to hospital. And it's really quite um, a powerful thing to and can be very um, can can lead to sometimes a lot of distress for the person who's on the community treatment order. Um, and so I've been very interested in looking at, um, how we implement community treatment orders, what does it mean for people, how could we reduce the use of community treatment orders, how do we enable the rights of people to be uh, mm. further protected, that kind of thing. Mm. So that's what I did my PhD on. So anyway, you can see what was going on. I started to <laughs> did a master's and then I ended up doing a PhD and then I've ended up doing a lot of research in that area, but I've expanded my research interests as well to other things. So obviously here... You have quite a few conflicting interests. Uh, first of all, keeping the community safe, but also ensuring that we're respecting the rights of people. With well, that's mental right. Health yeah, issues. and I, I have, you know, in my professional practice, I've actually sort of been able to see both sides of the of the, I guess, the discussion because, you know, quite often people are incredibly unwell and they can be very unsafe. Yeah. And I think the the issues for though is that often um, that risk to the community is very overstated, mm. and um, and it, when I talked about the people who I came across in forensic psychiatry, these were still very rare um, events, you know, where people might have committed a serious offence. Mm. And often, I think what was frustrating was that you might have seen that if if certain things had been put into place and there'd been supports. Um, available to that person, <coughs> then that terrible incident may never have happened. Absolutely. Um, but mostly if we think about people with serious mental health issues, then the likelihood is that the person they're most likely to, that's most likely to be harmed is them. Mm. Um, and I think, but unfortunately, those, those fears that we have in a kind of risk society in a way, you know, um, intrude on... Mm-hmm. On how much the community trusts people with mental health issues, and how they and how we construct 
um, the problems that they face. And that obviously impacts upon how policymakers respond as That's well. That's right, exactly, exactly. So what we see, what we saw though was a big spike, say for example with community treatment orders, we saw a big spike in their use in the 1990s and to a certain extent that was because a lot of people were coming out of the big hospitals and community treatment orders were kind of like a... Um, a safety net really will put these people on on orders in the community and they still have to do what they're told kind of thing um, but we did but by the time we got we got to an another review of our mental health act which I was actually had some opportunity to be involved in we started to see that perhaps we were overusing those mm. community treatment orders and that we needed to find um, ways to respect people's rights and that's been influenced by another important develop two important developments one has been the UN convention on the rights of persons with disabilities so that convention is really driving a lot of um, ensuring that people's rights are protected and enabling people to have to have their citizenship rights respected in the community and then there's been the recovery movement so this has really been coming from the consumer movement it's interesting that you call this this is Mad Village, yeah. But um, there's an organisation called Mad Pride and um, I was fascinated when I came across in London was the first time I'd been, well, I was visiting London about to go and give a talk about community treatment orders at a conference and they didn't have community treatment orders in England at that time and we were very familiar with them here in Victoria. And um, Mad Pride had organised a, a protest in the street protesting about the possibility of even having community treatment orders in 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 England and here was I coming from Victoria where we had thousands of people on them and mm. we didn't really think about them very much um, so that so mad pride is just an example of the consumer rights movement that also um, has contributed to this idea of the of shifting to more of a personal recovery approach mm. to mental uh, to mental health and mental illness. But I think what, what you mentioned before is really important. And I, that's why I also like the name of our show, Mad Village, because I think there's also a positive element of being mad. And also, in, um, there's also that idea that we're all quite mad in our own little ways. Yeah. Um, but what you, what you were saying before is that, yes, mental health issues are quite prevalent in our community, and that doesn't make people dangerous. No. And you can still accept and embrace people and that probably will lead to much better outcomes for everyone yeah that's, that's right i mean certainly that's the way we try to operate in our community center where you know basically everyone's welcome and we have quite a few you know we we, we would call them vip patrons who yeah. come and visit us all the time and quite quite a few people might make a complaint and say oh this person is here i mean generally speaking uh we embrace them and mm. we say, listen, they are part of our community. Mm. Everyone needs to learn ab about this and learn how to uh, make people feel welcome. And mm. that's, that probably leads to the best outcomes. Mm. So. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Lisa, you mentioned before the, the great policy changes through the 80s under mm. the Kane government. Mm. Are you sensing that there's a similar dynamic happening now or has the whole area slowed down in terms of evolution, do you think? Uh, well, I think the I think the CRPD that I mentioned before, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, has kind of has been a bit of an enabler of, of an enabler to start thinking through trying to influence again um, how policy and law is framed um, 
when we think about people who are more marginalised in the community. Um, I think the problem is that we've got other forces at work um, that make that more difficult, um, a lot less... Uh, well, uh, yeah, like we've, we've had problems in terms of services being adequately funded and um, those kinds of things. But I, I think I should mention the NDIS because I think the NDIS is a really important development and, of course, it's very fraught at the moment. Particularly um, in the area of mental health Health. Support. It's very fraught. And, um, but I'm very hopeful about the NDIS. Um, I'm very hopeful that a lot of the problems that we see now can get sorted out and that we actually see people with psychosocial disability. So disability that's – or functional impairment is what is the language of the NDIS, which I don't really like the language of the NDIS, but you have to kind of get used to it. But either way, people who have had have, are having significant difficulties in terms of their social connection and, and, and um, participation currently – might actually have opportunities through the NDIS that they've they they may not have had in the past because the NDIS does does represent a, a big increase in the amount of um, of disability support um, and let's hope um, people with mental health conditions get across um, and get access to the NDIS but I th- I still think that's always going to be the people who are going to miss out because the NDIS is really very much focused on that idea of more severe and permanent problems so um, at the moment there's a lot of discussion about how to ensure that other people who aren't going to sort of qualify for the NDIS if you like Mm. actually get still continue to get the support that they need we don't want to have this big widening gap of people you know who are either just getting the clinical services or they're getting the NDIS and nothing in between so there are um, primary mental health networks who are working on this and there's been some recent um, uh, some recent discussions about uh, further funding to try and make sure that we don't see that big gap. Mm-hmm. All right, let's listen to another track. Um, this, I think, will be quite familiar to a lot of our listeners. <laughs> All right, so that was uh, Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, the river. Um, and our guest this morning is Dr. Lisa Brophy. Lisa, where were you when you first heard that song? Oh, oh I can't tell you. I don't know. I wish I knew. I should, I should. I, I was probably, again, I was probably at university still. Um, but, I, but the reason why I suggest that we play it is just because I have seen Bruce in concert. In the last few, I've sort of come to Bruce Springsteen a bit late, actually. I think, but I went to see him in concert, and it was just the best. Three of the best nights of my life have been spent at Bruce Springsteen concert. So, um, I owe him. And I believe that he's still completely full of energy. Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. What's What's that reggae musician? Not Bob Marley, the other one who's very famous. He came to Australia. Oh, just like I can't remember his name. Anyway. Because I went to see him at the Commonwealth Games and he was already 72 or 73. And, you know, after two hours, he was still going. Yeah. <laughs> like, I um, believe that Bruce Springsteen is, is a he, bit like yeah, that. He'll go for yeah, three he'll hours go, plus. He just keeps going. Incredibly yeah. fit. And, and, when, and he, there's so many songs in his repertoire and yet there's so many of them you know. They're just, mm. they are the, 
they are the kind of the um, the soundtrack of your life in a way. <laughs> you know, when you're my age. Yeah. All right, um, Lisa. We we we've talked a lot, but I think it would be great to go back to a few fundamentals about uh, you know mental health issues. Mm. So I don't know if you can give us a bit of a snapshot on. I don't know, prevalence or effects. You know, you were talking about life expectancy before. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things um, that I'm very interested in at the moment, because um, as I said, my research interests um, have expanded quite a bit and I've been involved in a big big project about supported decision-making, which relates to the the convention about, about enabling people to gain more control over their lives and to see that also is so important to people's recovery. You know, there are, there are kind of, there's some really... Uh, there's a re- really important work, and we're introducing the students to it a lot at La Trobe now about the social determinants of health. Mm, and there's sure. really the social determinants of mental health as well. Mm. And so thinking about um, the range of things that might be contributing to why someone has a, a mental health issue. And we, in the break, we talked about trauma and that being really important. You, you said before that there's a, a bit of a movement to, start, to stop asking what's wrong with you. Yes, and start asking what's happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, talking and listening is so much the key to good mental health care and treatment. And somehow, and listening as we should be doing. And like I said, you know, that idea of psychosocial interventions. So thinking about all the different ways that we might be able to support people. Um, loneliness is a really big problem for people with um, mental health issues. It's a big problem in aged care. Uh, for ageing people as well, but it's a really big problem for people with um, uh, serious mental health problems. Um, and we see this this big problem about the, the, the um, life expectancy gap. So very similar to the Indigenous community, up to 20 years. So if you um, are, are diagnosed with something like a serious mental illness like schizophrenia or a bipolar disorder, the likelihood that you're going to die 20 years younger than the rest of the population is very high. And so one of the one of the quick wins around that that I might that I'm engaged with at the moment is one of the things that we've noticed is that people with um, with mental health challenges tend not tend to still smoke at a rate much higher than the rest of the population. So lots of the um, Generally, the public health interventions around smoking have been really successful, but they haven't necessarily reached more marginalised people. Um, and there are a range of reasons why people with mental health issues smoke. And um, we're going to try to look at those reasons and we're going to try and help people to engage more with um, the really good evidence-based strategies for helping people just stop smoking. There's a great service called Quitline, um, and we're trying to get more people to call Quitline and get that support. But we realise that we need more than just that. Um, and nicotine replacement therapy and having a good GP and um, really people who really understand why smoking might have become, become such a big part of your life um, is really important. Don't they call mm. it mindful smoking now? There's something around that? Oh, I haven't heard of that. But yeah, that, so we, we have uh, one of our colleagues was a drug and alcohol worker. Yeah. And he apparently there's a method which is called mindful smoking. Yeah. Where you, every time you have a cigarette, you think about the reasons why. Yeah. And what's well, that makes sense, doesn't and, it? And yeah. But, you know, smoking is just one one strategy. Mm, yeah. um, but there are, all, there are all sorts of ways of starting to. But what's really important about that whole 
physical health gap is actually saying it's wrong. It shouldn't be happening. And discrimination that's associated with the idea that we've tolerated that gap for too long. Mm. Can you explain a bit more about why that gap exists? What What is it about mental health that would lead to a shortened life expectancy? Yeah, well, that, um, some, of it, some of it is the medication that people are actually, you know, so um, some of the medications have actually got um, very serious side effects like weight gain. Um, people might at more, be at more risk of developing um, some chronic health conditions like diabetes and so forth because of the weight gain. Um, so that's been more acknowledged now and a lot more work because a lot of people, we talked in the break about a lot of people do get great benefit from medication, but um, it shouldn't be necessarily at the expense of their physical health. So that's one area. But a lot of it is actually more about the marginalisation, loneliness, all those kind of social and structural issues that actually then start impacting on someone. Um, I read something about how, um, you know, you you can get a diagnosis of schizophrenia and no matter what life was like before that diagnosis, um, there's a good chance that you'll be as lonely as all the other people who have got the diagnosis of schizophrenia within a very short period mm. of time. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we need to be doing more um, to actually change that trajectory for people um, so that there are all sorts of fantastic um, evidence-based interventions like, for example, individual placement and support where people are really encouraged to stay in education or stay in employment Those are the kinds of things that actually we have to understand are actually important for our mental health, important for our long-term health. Mm. Um, And that's – so uptake of more of those kinds of ways of working with people that acknowledge uh, a more holistic kind of way of working with people is very important. Yep. Mm. So I I hope that answers your question about that physical health gap. Yep. You know, but it's really something that we shouldn't be tolerating. Carol? We've run out of time. Oh, but I have so many more questions. <laughs> I know, we've only started. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, Lisa, we really want to thank you for being with us today. Uh, it's been great. Yeah, hopefully in a few months or, you know, we can have you again. Yeah, I've still got more. the conversation, exactly. I've got more to tell about (laughs) Coburg and Hadfield and all the other adventures I've had in this area. But anyway, another time. We could talk more about your new job as you settle in. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Alex says uh, on the other side, he says, keep going. No, no, we're going to, you know, our listeners couldn't live without Morning Magazine. So we'll have to to get out of here. Um, Now we're going to leave our listeners with uh, Lisa's last selection. And that's Eva Cassidy, Fields of Gold. Mm-hmm. All right, so we will see you all next week. But just Thank before you. we start, Jaime, do you want to tell us a bit about this selection, Lisa? Oh, well, Eva, she's she's got the most beautiful voice. And um, apparently when she when somebody they played another song that she sings beautifully, which is Somewhere Over the Rainbow, um, on the BBC radio, the, the you know, it was like the switchboard exploded. <laughs> anyway, and I and I sort of have my own little switchboard explosion when I first heard her. And sadly, this is all posthumous love because she oh, died. No. Yeah, she died very young. Mm. Um, and uh, she left us with this beautiful voice. All right, well... Thank you, Lisa. It's been yes. an absolute delight having you here today. Oh, thank you. Thanks <laughs> for right. having me. It's been great. No worries. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.